Yeah, so, alright, we can get started, but yeah, uh, good segue, we, um, you know, we read chapter 7 and 8 this week, chapter 7 is kind of like the, the chronological recounting of those five days of the February Revolution, and chapter 8, Trotsky kind of talks about, I mean, the, the title of the chapter is, Who Led the February Revolution, so he attempts to answer that question, since kind of everybody seems to just oh, yeah, be chapter like, Chapter 7 well, goes over what happens in, in the February Revolution. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, it, does anybody want to kind of take a crack at summing up some of the chronology of what all happened in those five days in February? Yeah. Uh, I don't know about the complete chronology, but um, I do remember from Chapter 6 how they made certain comparisons to uh, Tsar Nicholas and Louis the Sixteenth, And I think it's funny that both of those... Uh, also started with a women's march uh, with Louis the Sixteenth. It was the women who were marching their way towards Versailles, and this obviously with um, the Women's Day uh, strike. And it's just oh, that's that's another one. That's pretty interesting. That's just, yeah, yeah. Yeah, does anybody want to try and take a crack at summing up the uh, February Revolution? If not, I'll, I'll give it a shot if nobody volunteers. No, sorry, man. I, I tried to think for a minute what I, what I actually can remember from what I read. And the only thing I remember is that it started on the 23rd and the end on the 27th. Other than that, my man is cook. Hey, at least you got the dates, right? Um, I will say just kind of like as a, a general thing, not so much like what happened on what day. It is kind of interesting to see how as the reactionary forces are trying to like marshal all of the reservist soldiers that they aren't sending to the front, uh, how they just like, like the soldiers themselves are just very much... Uh, mm -hmm to borrow a phrase just not about it like they just oh, yeah. do not want to be soldiers, here like, like they're to the revolution like they're just they're just here because they were told to be here and it's okay. just a, a this very were, reluctant yeah. thing like uh, i think it goes into at one point like just describing uh the state of the soldiers and it's just like man these are just like the last like scraping the bottom of the barrel in terms of manpower and equipment and everything and it's just like they just don't want to be here and the while the cossacks are a different entity than the regular army uh i do uh i did recall reading from a different text how the cossacks were just like yeah we're here but we're also like fed up with the czar so we're just kind of, we're not going to aid you but we're not going to like stop you either and it's really funny how like after the the police see that they're just like what are you doing go get them and they're just kind of like nah we're, we're fine here we'll we'll stay here oh yeah yeah it's kind of uh pretty much a good talk talk about kind of the dynamics between the soldiery and stuff um so i'll, I'll give a shout at given the chronology so wait wait so are the police more willing to put down the revolution than the soldiers were correct yeah absolutely absolutely um 
that's kind of oh wow i wonder i wonder where i've seen that before yeah right oh yeah and then and then oh yeah and then the Tsarist government then just got more soldiers to, to th- that they thought that we're gonna put down the revolution and instead just joined it yeah exactly that's kind of the dynamic that um you see repeated throughout these kinds of things the the police and the soldiery are, are different they they have different functions in society. The police are the armed wings specifically of the bourgeoisie, so they will be loyal to the... Well, in this case, not necessarily the bourgeoisie, because it's not a capitalist state, but I'm speaking a little bit more modern. The, the police are going to be the armed wing of the ruling class. They're uh, The landed class. Yeah, whatever the ruling class happens to be. They're going to be the armed enforcement wing of the ruling class, so their loyalty is strictly to the ruling class, whereas the soldiery is drafted from the populace in general, especially in a time mm-hmm. of war like this. So they're going to have a more diverse opinion that would more accurately reflect the nation as a whole, whereas police tend to be self-selected to serve the ruling class. So calling out soldiery on the citizenry is literally telling the citizenry to shoot itself, basically. And you can convince mm-hmm. some people to do that some of the times, but not in the conditions that were going on. You can always get the police to shoot at people. I mean, nowadays they do that just on their own because they think it's fun, you know? <laughs> now, because like I said, because I, when I was um, trying to catch up, it kind of blended a little together. Do 7 and 8, uh, were they talking about... Because at this point, Tsar uh, Nicholas is... Uh, funnily enough, the self-appointed military commander at the front, which is funny because he can't do that either. Uh, do Are they talking about in 7 how just the Tsarina is trying to, like, send, keep sending Nicholas, like, uh, telegrams like, oh, every, everything's fine, everything's fine, everything's fine, until, like, the last moment. It's like, oh, actually, you need to come back because, um, you just, you just need to show them that, uh, that you're willing to listen to them and they'll go away. And it's also, and I, and in addition to that, uh, how just the population's just fed up with this very, uh, Teutonic, um, oh, what's the word? Like, government? Because the Tsarina herself is obviously Hessian, and then she's picking, uh, people with very obvious, uh, germanic titles and last names and i i think that's the previous two chapters so stop me if i'm going and retreading things but i just think it's just like oh yeah we're gonna just come in and tell them everything's fine and they'll just go about their way it's like no they're trying to replace you (laughs) wait so the sergeant even noticed the revolution was happening yeah, pretty much. At the time, he's at the front, and um, the Tsarina is the one letting him know what's going on at the capital, uh, just via telegrams. And she's trying to, for a long time, assure him that everything's calm, everything's okay. And Trotsky specifically mentions one of the times she sends that telegram is on a Sunday when work is not happening anyway because it's Sunday. So it's like, well, of course the city's calm. You, you're not going to notice a strike because factories are closed anyway. <laughs> So that winds up being pretty amusing. Uh, but yeah, she, she does have to be like, okay, never mind. Uh, things are bad. You need to get some more regiments back here, and we need to crush these people, put these people down, you know? Okay. That didn't work because they funny thought the because... was sending soldiers out. And soldiers mm. 
were more loyal to the revolution than the Tsar, the Sarnia. Yeah, so, yeah, I do want to talk about the chronology of these events, just because I think it's it's very prototypical of what happens in revolutions in general, at, at least at least in Trotsky's opinion, this and this is the way it played out in this case. So on February 23rd, it was International Women's Day, and the, the women workers went out on strike. Uh, the next day, the strike spread, the 24th, then the 25th, it basically became a general strike. At that point, there had only been police confronting the strike, and some shootings had happened, and the strike continued to spread and grow general. So the police were unable to contain the strike, so Cossacks were called out into the streets, and they were unwilling to completely put down the strike. They kind of just stood around, and they let the strikers kind of literally crawl under their horses. They kind of, you know, hit people a little bit here and there, but they weren't, like, really trying to, like, kill everybody and force them back to work kind of thing. So after the cavalry failed, uh, the next day, it, it spreads from a general strike, it becomes an insurrection. Now the uh, army is on the street, and they're, they're trying to stop the insurrection, they're trying to get the factories back to work. Um, the insurrection is starting to attack police stations, free political prisoners, um... I think Trotsky makes the comment that somebody asks, uh, you know, sh we're, we're freeing the political prisoners. Should we, should we free the Jews as well? And it's like, oh, God, are, are you really, do you have to ask <laughs> that question? <laughs> um, and then the order is given to the soldiers now, hard and fast, shoot. And that's where the decisive moment is. The soldiers are being told not just to contain this insurrection, but to actually put it down. And what's the soldiery going to do? And they're in constant contact with the people, and they, they refuse to shoot, basically. Mm -hmm. And the movement spreads. It starts taking over uh, state buildings. The Taride Palace is kind of the... Um... Oh, yeah, that becomes like the headquarters of the revolution. Yeah, like exactly. Some of the people who kind of stood on the wayside uh, wind up flooding into the Taride Palace, and they're like, okay, yeah, this is going to be the headquarters of the revolution, where what's, what's really going on is the workers are now organizing in their workers' district. Uh, Trotsky remarks that kind of the people who graft themselves on top of this movement kind of set up shop in the Taride Palace, and while the workers are kind of doing the, the quote-unquote real work back in the workers' district of organizing a soviet basically they they start organizing the workers to uh direct factory work and things like that where the people sitting in the Taride palace wind up being uh the provisional government in in contrast to the soviet um so there's a there's a couple things that happen in this chapter that are we're just going to kind of see themes of throughout the whole book and one of them is the the viborg viborg the i don't know how to say it v-y-b-o-r-g the viborg district those motherfuckers are revolutionary as hell, and they are everywhere anytime something cool is going down in Petrograd. They are, like, the bleeding edge of the vanguard of the working class in Petrograd, so they're always doing cool stuff. So look out for them whenever they get mentioned. They're always doing awesome things. Mm -hmm. So the most revolutionary in that city, Petersburg? Yeah. It's like the the workers' district in Petrograd, or one of the workers' district in Petrograd. And uh, Trotsky makes a remark somewhere. He says that, you know, part of what the insurrection is about is 
they're they're fighting for the heart of the soldier. They're trying because eventually the soldier is going to be given the order to shoot at the insurrection, and so it's it's a. Sorry. Oh, they're trying to get the soldiers on on the sides of the revolutionary. Yeah, exactly. And it's important to remember in the context of Russia that the soldier is the peasant. Basically, it's just the drafted peasantry because the peasantry is the majority of the population. Oh yeah, they're trying to get the peasantry to shoot. To shoot. Why? Why made them think that this was a good idea? Well, the, the people didn't even like being soldiers. What? Because at this point, like they're not. Like, they are completely, like, a separate entity from the population. So they just think, oh, just trot out the soldiers, and the soldiers will just do what we pay them to do. Just put the revolution. Without taking into account... They have to. Without taking into account the very populations that the soldiers have been drawn from. Yeah, basically. They're just, they're out of touch, and they have no other cards to play. The police aren't numerous enough or powerful enough to put down this insurrection. They're being defeated by the insurrection. They're being chased off. They're being shot back at. The, like I said, the police buildings are being raided. The prisons are being opened, so the police can't control the situation. The only card they have left to play that they think they can play is they first tried with the Cossacks, and that didn't work. And again, that's a less numerous population than the infantry is, so they try with the infantry, and they're like, all right, just shoot them, because it's the only thing they have left to do. And it, they just don't, because, like you said, they're, they're part of the population. They're, the population's not going to shoot itself, luckily, in this case. But so they, it was something they tried, because it's the only thing they had left to do, really. The police couldn't control it. Nobody could control it anymore. It was that or just lay down and let it happen kind of thing. Like, they... They weren't just going to let the revolution roll over them, so. I do think, uh, and I'm not sure exactly which chapter this is, so if I'm getting a little ahead or a little behind, let me know. But I do think it's uh, once the landed class realizes that, oh shit, this is a, this is a thing now, uh, a lot of... Um, Maybe not politicians, but a lot of uh, military officials. They're like, "Oh yeah, we'll uh, we'll join you guys because we see that you're winning." I think that might be in uh, chapter eight, but I just thought it was funny how because I expected it, I just didn't know where it would be. Uh, I was like, "Oh, I wonder when they're going to start being like, oh yeah, we'll we'll yeah, fight absolutely. with you guys That's, um, now.'" You even see some of that. I think it might have been in chapter five where all along the front lines, like all the generals are like, Hey, are you guys still with the czar or not? And they're, they're trying to decide if they're going to even turn on the czar at that point. So yeah, once they start realizing the revolution is the, the winning side there, everybody tries to hook their horse onto the revolutionary cart basically. And that's, that's what's going on. Mm -hmm. Which I'm, which makes sense. I mean, you see that you are not on the winning team. So you want to get on the winning team for, because maybe you do have generally revolutionary ideals and you just haven't been able to join, or maybe it's just like, oh, maybe if I join them early enough, they won't, like, hang me or something. Oh, yeah. It's like, if, oh, yeah. The thing about that, my take on it is that they were, if they were to join the revolution and the revolution were to be successful, they, they, they would have been hung like that. And so, and so, like, they decided to join the revolution because it was picking up steam, and that would have been the more beneficial thing for them, if you will get it. 
is to join the revolution. Yeah, and at this point, there's like it's the Russian Revolution was a dual revolution, so it's it's simultaneously the peasantry trying to claim their lands, but it's also the working class coming into power. So that winds up being the the chief conflict that's going on, and you can see it as early as February, where you have a, a committee trying to set up in the Tarid Palace, but you also have the workers trying to continue on fighting the revolution in in their workers' districts. You have one group of people trying to say, and this is like the petty bourgeois people who are trying to say, all right, we're done. That was a revolution. The czar's out. We're good to go. Let's set things back up and get back on with the war. And the workers are going to be like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, that's, that's not why we did this. Bro, no. Bro, that's not... Like, how about we don't? So that's going to kind of be the, the conflict that comes up now, is there's two different strains in this one February revolution, and they're going to come into conflict with each other. And it, it takes a while for both sides to really feel each other out and find their appropriate leadership. Uh, you know, Lenin doesn't come back until April, so we've got a, a month to go until that happens. Yeah. And then Lenin leads the revolution. Well, now, the, now the, uh, the more, I guess, liberal strain, are these the kinds of people that essentially want to put uh, Kerensky in power after the February Revolution, or is that a different yes, entity so entirely? The, the super spokesman for the liberals, the cadets, winds up being is a dude named Milyakov. And Kerensky, if I'm not mistaken, wasn't he with the Narodniks? So, yeah, Kerensky winds up being like the ultimate person kind of like straddling the camps. He's kind of represents the the rising petty bourgeoisie and kind of represents the people which is to say he winds up representing neither of them but he it's just a very bad compromise candidate that as we'll see eventually later doesn't really work wait i have a question are we going to get into the part that leads to the russian civil war it's the words the red army versus the white that will be yeah, so we'll go through the entire year 1917, and we'll go up on. We actually kind of break off right where the Civil War hits, but we'll, we we go up until the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, which was in early was in 1918, and then we kind of skip ahead to uh, 1921. But we do get kind of an overview of the Russian Civil War and kind of the policies that were in place. We don't actually look too much in detail at the Russian Civil War. We can talk about it once we start getting to that 1921 section, just to kind of, like, do a little quick catch-up. Here's what's been going on, but, yeah. Wait, hmm? I'm sorry, say again. Oh, like, I just get away, like... Ah, don't worry. What I said was, oh, for real? Hey. <laughs> Where the decision for Tusky to I feel like you're being part? not sarcastic in this case. Yes, genuinely, I just, I just was saying innocently, like, weird decision to skip the world yeah, war the part. time where Trotsky's in charge of the Red Army, right? But... Yeah, so will will he be in charge of the Red 
Oh, is it? He skips it so he doesn't have to, to talk about any of the wrong things he did he during the war, right? During that. There were a lot of fronts <laughs> that he pushed that did not wind up being the correct fronts to push. Some of them rhyme with Roland. Oh, 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 yes, to be. Oh, that it makes a lot of sense now that he didn't write about that. It makes I, a I lot of sense now. Less, oh. I, I think that's important to know, like from a military strategic perspective. But like from from the curriculum perspective, I don't know that there's too many political lessons to be learned from that. Do you know what I mean? That's that's kind of why I skipped that. Yeah, because I think. Yeah, because I think by that point in the war, it's more a military conflict and less a political upheaval, Wait. as is these early days. Wait, which war? Yes. The Russian Civil War? I think you were talking about the Russian Civil War. It, it remains a political conflict, yeah, but only in the sense that the Reds can cause the backlines of the white armies to rise up because they're peasants, so they can always appeal to the peasantry, no matter where they're at. Oh yeah, the Red had more... Okay, so the red had, red army had more mass appeal among Russian yeah, populations exactly. than, the, than the white army did. Right. Because I mean, what are what are the the uh, the whites fighting for? Oh, yeah, I think the whites are like fighting put for the like, czar back into place. Whites are that... fighting for like capitalist bourgeois democracy. That's to basically put the czar like in that whole government back into power. Which, sure, I guess if you just want to do the same thing you were just doing fine, I okay. guess, but for everyone else, it's like, hey, that wasn't working, and I that kind of sucked. Holy crap. Actually, it, that was kind of the, a thing from, my, from what I remember, I was reading about the Civil War, like, a couple of years ago, that was exactly what fucked them over, that at, at the white time, I had like, four or five different factions, I have some idea of Okay, we don't want to do socialism, but we want to do oh well, we want to do that and that is not the same that everyone else in the white army I mean, wants to do. Basically in the white army was kinda was a force because they they were actually yeah, a, a coherent political force. Even before the civil war breaks out is they don't have a coherent political program to adhere to. Wait. Wait, wait. So the white army wasn't a not so much. No, there were force? there were several different disparate generals. You had like no. Denikin on one front. You had uh, this guy. His name starts with K. I forget it right now. But you had a whole bunch of different fronts. Not Kornilov. It was Kornilov. Cavalry guy. I can't remember it right now. But um, it'll come back to me eventually. But anyway, there, you had a bunch of different fronts, but they didn't. They weren't like united in like a any kind of like, oh, we're all going to attack at the same time. They weren't coordinated with each other, and they were all kind of propped up by different nations as well. Like, France was propping up one group, and I think Britain was propping up another group, and Germany had, like... Yeah, exactly. Of course they were being propped up by, by the and, and But, like, That's not as surprising. a united effort, though. Like, they were all just kind of, like, doing it just to crush the Bolsheviks, but they didn't have a positive... Oh, crap. Wait. Wait, imagine if, like, the... Imagine if, like, like the white army was being propped up as a coherent Yeah, effort. it would have made it a lot more difficult for the Reds friends. in that case. What but they still would have faced the problem of they have... Wait. What? what? 
Wait, what if the Reds lost? Yeah, they, then they would have faced the problem crushed. of the fact that any program, like, they wouldn't, what they would be imposing on the population is something that they had just had a revolution against, or some variant of what they just had a revolution against. Oh, so, oh yeah, that, oh yeah, I, for, I forgot to mention that. I forgot, for, I, for a second, I forgot the revolution of 19, 1905 happened, where the Reds did get crushed in the way uh, the Tsar was in power. And so what happened then was that they went on, they had a general strike, and so there was February Revolution, and then the Tsar w- was kicked out of power. So I think something similar would have happened later. More or less. I mean, it just would have been kind of like a, a lost revolution, and then things would have re-fermented. But, you know, it, it's hard to play history as if. Oh, yeah. The ni- the, oh, yeah, so the, 19th, uh, the 1905 revolution was. But yeah, back to uh, 1917 in February, uh, we'll talk a little bit about Chapter 8. Trotsky asks the question, who led the February Revolution? <laughs> because he, he explores the fact that the Bolshevik main leaders are abroad at this time. The people on site are taken by surprise, and they're not sure if this is even going to succeed, and they're kind of advocating caution the whole time, and they're worried it's going to fail. Uh, the Mensheviks are not leading this. The socialist revolution, yeah, the socialist revolutionaries are not leading this, and the constitutional democrats certainly are not. Obviously, the czar is not. So, so who led this thing? And he basically comes around and is like, just because no, it wasn't an organized revolution doesn't mean it was leaderless. He he winds up saying it's not leaderless, it's nameless, and. What wound up leading it, it was all of the careful preparation, constant propaganda that was inundated among the population by the Bolsheviks, by these socialist groups. And the workers kind of took it, drew their logical conclusions from it. And once they saw their moment, they seized it and went with it. So he concludes that despite not really being there to lead it, the Bolsheviks are the ones who led it kind of indirectly. Well, standard liberal analysis. Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's interesting because it brings up the question like how, like, is it completely necessary for there to be like uh, not necessarily like a big man, but like does it necessarily have to have a leader all the time, or can it just be like, all right, uh here's this here's all this information that we're disseminating amongst you and then once things break out it's like oh we already kind of know where the problems are so we're gonna go over there and seize this and then this and then this and like it's like like you said like there's no like big general at the head of the line but like everyone just kind of mutually understands like oh yeah, let's think, just yeah. let's just take care of all these problems that we all know are the cause of all these issues. Okay. Okay, it was everyone working together to try to solve. Yeah, and the honestly, problems I think society. that's probably like if if you had your pick of how to do things, it would be better if you could make it such that the population is so on board with with your program that you can't identify a leader because everybody knows already what to do. Yeah, exactly. Everyone if, if you don't have trying to get this thing done. 
yeah, it's not so much a concern about it's it. It's not a top down, down. Just that, like, if if you can decapitate the movement and then the rest of it, you know, if you just assassinate a couple of leaders and then you're out of luck, then that's not really a good model, you know. If if you have to kind of make it such that the working class can propel itself forward, you know, there's the the classic quote that the emancipation of the working class must be an act of the working class. So if you can get a large portion of the working class on board with your program understand what needs to be done and they don't need to be quote-unquote led to the goal and they can just go for it themselves it, it's kind of like you're by a leader oh yeah i remember reading this thing for the server this discord server where it's like our leaders will be assassinated coup jailed or whatever whatever so then it's helpful for it to like not have, rely on a leader as much so that the revolution doesn't just collapse. Which, to a, to agree, I always think it's funny how, um, and this is kind of going off track a little bit, but I think it's funny how in like certain depictions in fiction or whatever, it's uh, like uh, in, in Hearts of Iron, a game I like to play, in one of their mods, it's like, oh, well, Lenin's assassinated, so the revolution just falls apart and fails it's like that's not really how that worked but well that's what okay. we're reading this so so we can learn how it worked because i haven't seen a single mention of when and so i haven't seen that mention of when and it's just leading the revolution right because i think at this point i think Roll mentioned it as well uh lenin's still yeah, out lenin's in like, exile i think he's in switzerland, switzerland right now then he's smuggled back into the country in yeah. April. I haven't. I I just it's it's seen as like the revolution like has evolved from strikes. That's how I. That's what I got from chapter seventeen instead of just. I think if leader, that's what you get from like chapter Lenin. seven, that's pretty excellent because that's basically Trotsky's theory of how a revolution happens. Is it, it emerges from a general strike and that general strike committee tr then trying to seize political power, not stopping at a strike but then going over to a political strike, going from a general strike to a political strike and seizing power. Well, that... Yep. Well, that's what Trotsky was observing was happening with this. So that's why Trotsky developed this theory. And, it, and it's something, like, even if you study, like, American history, kind of, if you look at... It, it, it's actually frustrating if you know that and study American history. You can see various different strikes that are not they're general strikes within a city and they'll they'll take over the city they'll be running like the railways in the city the tram lines the electrical companies the utility companies they're on strike and then the owners are like all right fine we'll give you your five percent raise that you want and then they'll just call off the strike and they'll be like yeah we won everybody and it's like wait a minute you were just america moment yeah, when yeah, when you read about uh US labor history, it's like, oh, we like it's not all examples of failure. There there are some examples of like positive change, but then but then like you said, it's like, all right, we got our raise. All right, everyone, go back to work. It's like, no, what are you doing? What are you doing? You have them by the the balls metaphorically. Then, then it's just like squeeze just those balls keep going. Just keep doing it's it. like something like that. Bring them to the knees. Yeah. But like, why stop at five percent? Ten percent or fifteen percent? I was gonna say five. I was gonna say five point five, but that's fine well, too. Well. But uh, but I do think it's also interesting uh with this chapter specifically because for a long time I was like, 
you know, like there's, there's gotta be like these figureheads at the head of like the movement. And now after reading this, it's like, you really don't have to, if like you set the, the population up with literature and not necessarily theory, but like, like an explanation for their problems. And then like, you just allow it to collectivize and seep in. You don't really need like a, a, a figure because like we've discussed like what happens when that figure is gone gets, like taken out or whatever it's like oh well, what, well, well who, who's because like you're setting yourself up for infighting it's like oh well well now i'm the leader now no now i'm the... so if you don't have that then you can just yeah, i think that's a good keep point going too, like the revolution can if keep, you keep going kind of in the back of your mind too when we start reading about the german revolution obviously most people know about um Obviously, Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht were assassinated, but there were other people who, you can't say replaced them, but I mean, took their role as then leaders of the communist movement in Germany. And uh, Paul Levi, if you've seen me talk about the man, I love him to death. I think he did a fine job. Um, so it's it's not like you just kill the leaders. It's like, no, there's there's other people. There are reserves, you know. Those might be the best possible people, but you do have people who can kind of fill the role. Like if Lenin had been assassinated, Trotsky was there. If Trotsky had been assassinated, he had people behind him too. There's like Sverdlov and Shliapnikov while he wasn't doing his best in February at this point. I mean, hopefully he could have learned the lessons and kind of stepped up more. There's like Bukharin or Bukharin, however you say the guy's name. You know, like there's, there's all kinds of layers of people below these people who while may not have the best qualities, are probably good enough. They could be filtered by the masses, mm -hmm. and, you know. Well. well yeah, it's why, like, uh, like to bring it back to Kaiserreich again, because I, I love that game to death, it's just like, mm -hmm. so you kill Lenin, and then, the like, we're just going to pretend that there was... There's no, there's no Stalin, no, no Trotsky, no, no, like they all just, they, they the all just scatter to the wind. Lenin. It's like, what are you, what are you doing? They thought like, wait, did you yes. say does the Stalin then end in like Argentina? Look, I, I'm not that much of a nerd as this guy, but I also know Kasserak, and I'm pretty sure or Stalin ends up in like anarchist Argentina at that time. Interesting. I didn't notice that. But I could go okay. on for Hearts of Iron this for is, hours. This is, <laughs> this is the most stupid thing we ever attack about. This is the real theory. If the revolution fails, where does Stalin go next? <laughs> that that's that's pretty that's pretty dope. Well, I wish I could. Well, be Stalin cool will probably that. rob more banks. <laughs> As he should, but uh, but yeah, it's just interesting, and I think it's a problem, not necessarily with individuals, but how we've just kind of been fed yeah, history, history like, like individual leaders. Like you don't learn really, and yeah, basically, like you're just taught like kind of names and dates, like like George Washington, Andrew Jackson, uh, as cursed as oh, those yeah, Andrew, two people oh, yeah, are, Andrew Jackson or like the. Like, or like the kings of area. England, and then it's like, it's like you get your big, bold, typeface names, and then that's just kind of what you're led to assume. It's like without these people, these these events don't happen. Without 
looking over the underlying yeah, causes and subtexts of these larger like events. Kind of dispel because it should, yep. like Trotsky said at the beginning, it should show you how there's a logic to these movements that, like, regardless of who is embodying those logic, the logic is still there. What winds up? Go on. Like, let me say. The movement comes from the people instead of what leader, as we were talking about earlier, and so, so if like, there, there's a logic yeah, to the yeah. movement, and so like the movement is logical. Yeah, and to, and to go on that because I'm reading um, a biography on Che, and I think it's interesting how, as try as he might, like a lot of his later work after. Uh, Cuba, and I guess before too, uh, he's trying to start these uh, revolutions in different countries, but the population is not behind him. And I can't quite tell, I don't think I've gotten that far into the book. Um, like, he just, he, there's just not, like, for lack of a better word, like the propaganda or like the lessons and teachings in these populations. So, like, when he gets there and he's like, all right, I'm going to try and start a revolution in, uh, I think he wanted to do one in Argentina before Bolivia, but that didn't happen for other reasons. Uh, and then when it just doesn't come to pass, he's like, well, why didn't this happen? And I think it's because the population just didn't want it. So like, if the pop, like we've been saying, if the population's not behind it, yeah, and it's, then it doesn't matter who you have. Like, it's just well, not going to happen. So how do you get a population here behind is revolution? The program that the population is willing to support. The, the logic of the movement has to come from the program. So the program that everybody was burning with desire for right. at this time was an immediate end to the war and land to the peasantry. Once the Soviets come out, it's also going to be all power to the Soviets because that's going to be the only way to guarantee the other two things. It's not so much that a population ever wants a revolution, it's that the ruling, the existing ruling order cannot meet the demands that are there. So, as an example, one of the demands that broke out the 1905 revolution was the eight-hour day. That was a revolutionary demand in Russia that required a revolution to institute it. Trotsky, in his history of 1905, says that they were not able to win the eight-hour day for the working class in 1905, but they did win the working class to the eight-hour day. So in 1917, when this revolution breaks out, the eight-hour day is another demand that comes up. In America, it was possible to win the eight-hour day just using the trade union form. The ruling class in America did not make it a question of a revolution. They were able to say, okay, fine, we're not going to escalate this anymore. You can have this eight-hour day. It's It's actually kind of interesting it's not up to us when the revolution happens it's up to the ruling class when it happens if they in russia had been able to end the war and give a satisfying land program to the peasantry the revolution would not have happened because that was what the revolution was over was the war and the land program it's it's up to the ruling class when the revolution happens what's up to us is to try and figure out what the most pressing needs of a population are, of the working class are, and to develop that into a coherent, simple program that everybody can get behind. 
and the Bolsheviks did it flawlessly in 1917, land to the peasants, into the war, all power to the Soviets. You could say that in three sentences, everybody understood it, and it reverberated on a very deep level to everybody. And because nobody was giving that to them, they had to seize power to do it, and that's what made it a revolution. Exactly. Like, to, to get a population bread. on board for a revolution, it's more about getting a population on board with, with a specific program, and that's more about discovering what the population needs, what's the most pressing demands or needs of the population, and then working to fight for those needs and demands. And sometimes you can meet those needs and demands without a revolution, and that's fine, too. There's nothing wrong with that, you know? The eight-hour day was a huge step up, you know? Yeah, like what happened in the United States a lot yeah. of the times, except for nowadays and, we're and we're going backwards. But then the goal would just be, you know, what's what's the next demand? After you make the eight-hour day, it's like, okay, what's next? And in America, that was, you know, you had the Civil War around that time. You had Reconstruction in the South. You had, like, Asian Exclusion Acts. You had, yeah, exactly. Like, you had all kinds of different questions that you, you can pursue. Failed. There's There's always something that a program can be developed around and then fought for. And put, pushing kind of like the envelope of working class power to the point where eventually the ruling class will find it intolerable to meet our demands. And they'll still be important pressing demands. And that's kind of when a revolution gets precipitated. Oh yeah, there's been a slow rise sort of communism kinda, you know. in the states. Kind of. Yeah. yeah well, but, um, well, the fake left see, is we massive. Got... We're gonna say. Yeah, I was gonna say if anybody else has any thoughts anyway, on the... these, we can anyway, talk back to the about those. Revolution. But otherwise, I was gonna say just we can keep with the theme of two chapters a week if we want to do nine and ten for next week. They look to be about the same length. Mm-hmm. Say again? Yeah, I think that's fine. Oh, okay, yeah. What do you mean? Alright, cool. Well, yeah, we can meet back up same time, same place. I'll put it in the announcements, all that good stuff. Oh, yeah. Alright, well, unless anybody else has any other thoughts, uh, take care, everybody, you know. Oh, let's hear it. Oh, I have some thoughts. Okay, I have to, I do have some thoughts on like the revolution and the, like. Wait, do you think so? I have a question. Do you think that this something like this could happen today? In this... so, like the Russian Revolution of nineteen seventeen. Say what, Panda? Wait. Well, could something like the Re- Russian Revolution oh, wow. happen today? I did. Okay, I was doing a little bit of an asshole. I, I said so no because I it's not 1917. Today, I was not just, in the same way. It the same contours just because <laughs> I just meant- the the peasantry is not as large of a population. Uh, not in like America oh, yeah. for sure. Yeah, exactly. We're not in the middle of a world war at present. Uh, a different material um, condition. You could argue one is brewing over in the Ukraine, but at present we are not in a world war. A significant portion of our population is not in the army. Um, we have not previously had 
a revolutionary experience like 1905. If anything, the next revolution is going to look a little bit more like 1905, where you have a naive population going into a revolutionary situation. And so absolutely, the, re so the, the revolution of 1905 the about what the revolution of, of 1905. They knew what a Soviet was, and they instinctively made new Soviets in 1917. It wasn't a new experience for them. They knew what a Soviet was. They knew how they worked. And so they were able to set them up without any prior direction, which was like a massive help because in 1905, the Soviet was mostly just in Petrograd, whereas in 1917, they popped up all over the country because they had the example of 1905. So, so they learned from their mistakes exactly. in 1905. Exactly, and I think that's like, it, it really demonstrates the importance of knowing working class history too, because you can learn from previous mistakes to kind of avoid them the next time around because mistakes in revolutionary terms are paid in like hundreds mm. of lives, you know, if not thousands, depending on the level of a mistake we're talking about. Yeah, if you if you are in history, you should know that mistakes are... Yeah, so excellent question. Good Mistakes questions. in like revolutions are like paid with lives. I mean, it sounds like you're picking well, things up. Like learn. you said, you've picked up that um, the revolution sprung out of a strike. Like, that's, I think, not a lot of people who just, like, have a, a passing understanding of Russian history would just be able to say that, oh, yeah, you know, it, the Russian revolution, it emerged out of a strike. You know, not a lot of people probably know that if they just have a passing familiarity. Okay. The thing is about this book is that there's so, like the so, so much dedicated the to strikes. The working class. So much. There's so much of the book dedicated to strikes and Yeah, if nobody else has any other thoughts, comments, questions, concerns, uh, see you all next week. It was lovely chatting again. Take care, everybody. Mm-hmm. Let's do it. See you.